All right, y'all, we're gonna go ahead and get started. Um, welcome to week six of Church for Monday. And so we are um, super thrilled that you guys are all here. Uh, tonight, what we're gonna be doing is uh, moving into our next mark of discipleship. So just to kind of like, again, frame the, the context of Church for Monday, we're, we're, a lot of these ideas are centered around our five values as a church, the cross, the yoke, the Bible, the church, and the city. And, and these values are kind of the foundation of what we've called the seven marks of discipleship, uh, which are really kind of rooted in the, the values. And so you've seen these marks, which are essentially the title of each of our lectures, that a disciple who is ready for Monday takes up the cross, which means that we center our lives on the, the message of the gospel that invites us into the life of the kingdom. The, a disciple who's ready for Monday puts on the yoke, this idea of following Jesus in all of life, that we are not just saved from something, but we are saved for something. Uh, we saw how a disciple who's ready for Monday builds their life upon the Bible, that the Bible is not just a helpful list of religious facts, but it is the grand narrative that we make sense of all of life through. It's the, the lens, the framework of making sense of all of reality. We talked about the framework of ought is, can, and will. That's the lens through which we look at all of life. And then last, last week, Nathan shared with us how a disciple who's ready for Monday loves the local church, that the church as God has designed her to be is the hope of the world. And, and when we are invested in the local church, we are a part of God's work and mission in redeeming and restoring all things. And so tonight, we shift our focus to this last value, the city. And within the city value uh, is where we'll be looking at these last three marks of discipleship. And the city value is this metaphor that we use to describe how we exist as followers of Jesus for the good of those outside these walls. That, that Christians in particular are designed and created and commissioned to exist for the good of our non-members. And, and so we're gonna be unpacking over the next three weeks the city value uh, that we see in the, the last three remaining marks of discipleship. And so tonight what we're gonna be looking at is how we, uh, a disciple who's ready for Monday lives generously, lives generously. But, but in general, broadly what this means, a disciple who's ready for Monday, we give ourselves away. That primarily, the primary posture and description of a follower of Jesus is that we exist to give ourselves away. And, and what we're gonna look at tonight specifically is this idea of generosity. What does it mean to live a generous life? And, and while this can include a lot of things, where we are going to focus our time is around financial generosity. And so everybody loves talking about money, and so that's what we're gonna do. But, but here's the thing, I, I know this can be an uncomfortable conversation, because if there's anything I've learned to be true about kind of our culture, particularly us as Westerners, is that there are two things that we claim to believe we have rights over that no one else does, our body and our money. And in some ways that's true, but if we are believers of God, who is the giver of all good gifts, sovereign over all things, it means that we are stewards of everything he has entrusted to us, including our body and our money. But we tend to operate in a very individualistic, very triumphal perspective when it comes to our finances, our skills, our abilities, our resources. I have what I have because I've earned it, I've worked for it. And in one sense that's true, but when we operate in an understanding that God is the giver of all good gifts, he owns it all, it changes the way in which we view all of our abilities, our talents, our time, our resources. 
And so tonight what we're going to be looking at is broadly what it means to live generously as it pertains to our finances. And, and if Jesus didn't say it, I wouldn't believe it, but, uh, but uh, quoted, uh, Jesus is quoted in the book of Acts chapter 20, verse 35, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Again, if Jesus didn't say it, I'd be like, bogus, I, I don't believe that. Like, I think we have a hard time believing that, right? I mean, try convincing a child of that at Christmas. It's like, really? Like, or an adult, an adult any time during the year. Like, I think we all struggle to believe that it is more blessed to give than receive. And I think it's really hard for us to live into this, again, largely because of our culture. But I think we have a hard time parting with our money, sometimes more than any other aspect of our lives. Because it's ours. We feel like it is entitled to us. But if we operate through the, the, the meta-narrative that God owns all things, it changes the way we view our resources. But it's so easy for us to feel entitled and attached to what we have. And what that can create is this kind of scarcity mentality of I need to get more and, and I want what you have. And we find ourselves kind of acting more like the monkeys in this incredible video that I need to show you. Ben, roll that beautiful monkey footage. I love that so much. <laughs> she tests the rock now against the wall. She needs to give it to her. And she gets to the <laughs> 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 Oh, I, I, I just... Let's just watch that all night on loop. It's like, but it's so amazing. I mean, like, it's, it's so quick how this monkey, like, first was satisfied with the cucumber. But the moment he or she or whatever it was, like, saw that the other monkey had a grape, it's like, well, clearly this is no longer satisfactory. And how true that is of us. Like, we can laugh, like, oh, stupid monkeys. But, like, this is exactly how we operate. We come home and we see our neighbor has a new car or our new friend has, or a friend has a new phone. And we, we instantly are dissatisfied with the thing we have. And we want something else. We are wired to always want the next thing. We are longing people and we are never satiated. As St. Augustine once said, that our hearts are restless until they find their rests in thee, in God. And, and what's so interesting is that our, our tendency and proclivity towards greed and materialism, yes, it, it does stem from our sinful nature, but it is also contrived within our culture. And this is something that we may not be fully aware of, but so much of our greed and materialism in modern times has been forged by and is really attributed to a man by the name of Edward Bernays. Has anybody heard of the name Edward Bernays? Ben has, because Ben's smart. And maybe he read my notes. Uh, no, but like, Edward Bernays is the father of modern advertising. He was the nephew of Sigmund Freud. And he applied much of the teachings of psychology to marketing and advertisement in such a way that what he essentially taught American corporations was how to link our desire for our unconscious desires with mass-produced products. And, and this became kind of the means by which items were sold. 
And so things move from being useful and necessary tools to kind of improve life to, uh, to vital items that substantiate and validate our significance. And there's a great PBS documentary that talks about Edward Bernays, but he, he, they mentioned an example of women, how women didn't smoke. And in the 40s and 50s, there was this campaign to create a, a desire, a market for women to smoke cigarettes. And the way they did that was to show in advertising that women who smoke are confident and strong and bold and courageous because women weren't seen that way in those times. And so we link this unconscious desire for something good, being courageous, bold, etc., with an item that we need. So in order to be courageous, in order to be bold, I must smoke something bold. You know, that's kind of the idea. And so the result now is that we have material items that, again, are not useful tools, but are necessary for our happiness, for our identity. And the result is we now have, as a culture, assumptions about money, about possessions, and about our longings that are not rooted in the gospel, but rooted in kind of corrupt marketing. And I'm not bashing anybody who's in the marketing industry, but on the contrary, I would say all the more reason for us to live and work in the marketing industry with integrity and conviction. And so all this to say is that we need to do some unlearning about how we think about money, about possessions and finances, if we are to live into God's design for how we view money, resources, and possessions. And so what we're going to do tonight is, is uh, unpack this idea of what it means to live the generous life. If you've been with us on Sunday mornings, you hear us talk about this. We absolutely believe it, that the generous life is the best life, that we are never more like God than when we are generous, when we emulate this posture of giving ourselves away. And again, what, this can be expressed in multiple avenues but we want to focus on specifically this need of finances, which again is the thing we tend to cling a little bit more tightly to. And even some of us tonight are even thinking like, don't you meddle, Reed, don't you dare. Like this is like the one area where you don't have jurisdiction. Uh, but I, I want us to kind of lean into this. And, and let me be really clear, I'm comfortable talking about money. And, and I'm comfortable not because it's something I want from you, it's not because it's something I think that we, like, we are so desperate for your money, like the mission of the Lord Jesus Christ is contingent upon your pocketbook. That is not true. One of the things we deeply believe, and I truly mean it, it sounds like pastor speak, but it's not, that the generous life is a life that we want for you. It is not something we want from you. I absolutely believe that at the core of my being. And so, so what we're going to do tonight is look at these foundations of the generous life by first looking at our generous God. Uh, but before we do that, I want us to kind of go to our tables for our first round of table discussion. And so uh, the first question is, share your memory verse with somebody at your table. And then there's two other questions that you have there uh, that we'll jump into together. And then we'll come back for our first point on the generous God. So uh, one thing I forgot to mention, and, and we've addressed this a few times in our uh, journey together in Church for Monday, but there is this important ordering uh, when we think about the Christian life, about the the gospel, in, uh, the gospel indicatives of what has been declared, what is true, and the gospel imperatives, how we now live in light of that. It's so vital for us to have this ordering correct, that, that good gospel living starts with our being and that produces our doing. 
When we reverse that order, things fall apart. When we think that our being comes about as a result of our doing, we fall into this, this kind of legalistic, merit-based uh, form of, of sanctification and growth. But the, the ordering is so vital that our doing flows from our being of who we are. And so when we talk about living a generous life, being people who give ourselves away, uh, that if we, there's a reason why we start with the, that we take up our cross and we enter the yoke. Before we begin talking about how we are to live, we begin by looking at who we have been declared to be in the gospel, which is why one of my favorite passages in the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul, he, he gives this very just like clear explanation like of what a Christian is. Uh, and, some, and so in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, this is how one should regard us, referring to Christians. He's speaking to a church of Christians. It says, this is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of stewards that they be found faithful. So you notice before, before Paul gives this exhortation of, hey, be faithful, be faithful and, and be obedient and follow the rules, he begins by describing their being, their identity. We are servants. That's fundamentally who we are. And so for a Christian to not have this posture and mindset of, I exist for the good of others. I exist for the flourishing of my neighbors, my enemies. Uh, if we don't have that mindset, we're missing out on what it means to be someone redeemed by the power of Christ Jesus. And so as we think about living the generous life, giving ourselves away, that flows from our being, not, and it's not a doing that produces our being. So that ordering is so vital. And it's also why we're beginning with the generous God, beginning with who God is at his character, at his core. He is a generous God. Now, some of you may be familiar with the name A.W. Tozer. A.W. Tozer uh, is an old dead guy uh, who loved God and is with God now. But he wrote a book called Knowledge of the Holy. And th th this book, it's a very short little book. It's, it's almost a bookmark. It's very, very tiny, but very dense. Um, and in the first opening line is, the most important thing about us, or what comes into our minds when we think about God, is the most important thing about us. What we, what we believe to be true of who God is is vitally important about us because what we believe about God forms and shapes what we believe about ourselves, about the good life, and about what it means to pursue that good life. And so what we think, in, what we think about God affects what we believe and it affects what we love, which is why starting with God as a generous God is so vital in talking about the generous life. What, what you truly believe about God will always influence your loves. It will always influence your loves. And conversely, what you love reflects what you believe. It's this kind of two-way street that what we love, what we give our attention and affection to tends to reveal where our actual functional beliefs reside. So what I want us to do is kind of focus on this generous God. And what we're going to do, some of you did this at your tables, but I want to kind of look through the generosity of God through the four-chapter story of creation, fall, redemption, and new creation. So some of you probably did this, but as we think about our understanding of God, what are some of the ways in which God, we see the generosity of God in creation in the first chapter of the four chapter story of creation, of the way things ought to be? How do we see God as generous in creation? What are some things you guys shared at your tables? He yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, fundamentally, in the, in the giving of life, like, there was nothing, 
And then there's something like there's like the, the very fact that we have life, the, the fact that we have breath in our lungs, sight in our eyes, taste in our tongues, sound in our ears. That is, that is a, a generosity. That is a grace towards us. And the fact that God didn't need to create, he wasn't bored. He did not contrary to like popular, sometimes Christian music belief. God didn't create because he was lonely and loved us so much that he, he needed to make for himself. God was fully sufficient in and of himself, delighting in the triune nature of himself. Creation is a way of God expressing himself because he is an outpourer by nature. So the very fact that there's life, what, what else? What are some other ways in which we see the generosity of God in creation? It's a really wonderful place for the people to live. Yeah, it's, that it's not just utilitarian. Like it's like, it's not that everything is taupe and everything tastes like tofu. Uh, does tofu taste like something? No, I'm not sure. But, but yeah, there, there's, there's beauty. There's a, how did you say, Doug, that like, he created a wonderful world? A wonderful home. Yeah, yeah, he, yeah I, I, I like that language of home. Yeah, it's like there's grapes and cucumbers, not just cucumbers. But, but in, I mean, seriously, like even just as I think about that, just the fact that, again, food is not, we need food to survive, but God didn't just create like a world filled with vitamins and supplements, but that we have food that tastes good, that there's beauty even in our tongues and what we enjoy. What else? What's another way we see the generosity of God in creation? Say it again, Ken. No barrier, yeah. So, so before yeah, the fall enters the world, there's just complete access, full access to God. I love that. No barrier. Uh, no barrier, no, like kind of, in some ways, like no, no fences in the Garden of Eden, so to speak, that there is just this complete access. Come and go as you please. If you think about like, it's like God's kitchen is, uh, what, what's the term? Like when, when, you, uh, when your kids' friends have like refrigerator rights in your house, that means like they can come over and grab whatever they want in the fridge. Like God, like we had refrigerator rights in God's kingdom, so to speak. That metaphor doesn't totally work, but just go with it. Uh, what else? Maybe one other, one other way in which God is generous in creation. Unlimited beauty, unlimited beauty. I mean, like, like we won't be able to fully grasp and delight in all of the, of the wonder and beauty that God has created. And in fact, he, in some ways, it's the extravagance of his generosity, that there's so much beauty that he's created that we can't even fully fathom and enjoy in our finite perspectives. What did you, unlimited beauty, John, yeah, I love that. Unlimited beauty. I love that. All right, well, let's turn to the fall as we think about this. Um, and, and again, this might feel like, well, how is God generous in the fall? That's when like, things fall apart. That's when things are, uh, um, are corrupt. But where do we even see generosity of God in the chapter of, of the fall? What comes to mind? Yeah, JD? Yeah, so, so the, even, even with shame and sin entering the world, there's still some kind of provision. You see that even in the clothing that is provided. And so that, that seems like a small thing, but it's, it's a way of God, I think, communicating, even though you have ruined my garden, you no longer have refrigerator rights, you know, in my kitchen, uh, I'm still providing some aspect of covering for you. Which, that, man, there's a whole theological understanding of what, what is going on there, but I'll save that for later. Um, but yeah, so we, we see the, the providing of clothing the covering of the animal skins. What else? What's another way in which we see the, the generosity of God even in the fall? Our table talked about how he promised that he would give us a redeemer. Yeah. That's good. <laughs> Sorry, I thought you were going to keep going, Ben. It's like, I was, I was just so, because like, that's... <laughs> 
that sounded so like, yeah, yeah, that's all you got? No, no, but like, just because that's one of my favorite. <laughs> Uh, that's one of my favorite pat. We talked about how Genesis 315, 315, 316, three, one of those, three teens, is it's the proto the first gospel, that as, as sin enters the world, as the curses are being dished out, in the same breath, God declares that this will not have the final story. This will not be the final word. That sin and death and shame will not be the final word of my story. I have sent one and one is coming who will, yes, the serpent will bruise his heel, but you will crush his head. And so you even see in the promising of the Messiah, the promising of the one who would come to crush the serpent. And so there's generosity even in the dishing out of curses, which says something about the nature of God. That's, yeah, beautiful. What, what else? What's another way in which we see the generosity of God in the fall? He still made himself, he still revealed himself to his people. Yeah. Still in some kind of kind of communication, it's not full communion. There, there's been a, a severing, a, a disintegration of the relationship to God, but there's still some aspect of communication. It's not that at the moment of eating of the fruit that God is no longer present, that God is now silent. There's still communication. There's still some semblance of relationship, um, which, which again, I think communicates his generosity. I mean, even the fact that, that Adam and Eve are not utterly destroyed, that, that he just doesn't just wipe out in the entire created order. That, that is a generosity towards us. The fact that there is, yeah, the fact that there, there is still life to some degree. Okay, so um, let me think of, there, uh, there was one more thing I was going to mention. Oh, that was it. Yeah, the fact that there's still life. Okay, so let's, let's go to redemption. Now, this one's Maybe a little bit more obvious where we see the generosity of, of God. So the Sunday school answer, where do we see the generosity of God? Jesus. Jesus. Very good. Yeah, but, but truly, I mean, in the provision of his own son, of himself, in the person of his son, to be the atoning sacrifice, the atonement, uh, to provide for us through Christ the opportunity to, be, to regain Refrigerator rights, so to speak. This, this metaphor, I'm going to keep using this metaphor. Um, but, but to gain full access back to the Father. To have this now integrated life that is made possible. And again, I mean, th this is where we really see generosity on display. Um, okay, now, now let's, let's kind of look at new creation. What are some ways in which we see the generosity of God in new creation? What comes to mind? Yeah. Home and no barriers. Yeah, I mean, it, you, you have this, but kind of like the, the 2.0 version. It's just, it's, it's because again, remember when we talked about the, the new creation story, that it's not God promising, behold, I am making all new things, but I'm making all things new. There is this refinement, there is this beautification and improvement to what was even created and declared good in the garden. There's a generosity in bringing back what we lost, but improving upon it. And, and, and to that point, what Rayanne what mentioned is that like, there's also this kind of, and what, uh, what John mentioned was this kind of unlimited beauty and that it's ongoing. And so there is an eternal aspect um, to the infinite beauty, the infinite access, the, the unending life of dwelling in the presence of God. 
What else? What else comes to mind when we think about God's generosity in the new creation, the new heavens and the new earth? Say it again. Reintegration. Yeah. So it's the bringing back together everything that was lost. But in some ways, it, there is an improvement because think about, I mean, we don't have a time to get into this now, but like there will be more beauty in the new heavens and the new earth because what we see throughout the biblical narrative is that there are things that have been created by the hands of humanity that will find their way into the new heavens and the new earth. I, I don't know the full details of that, but there's a sense in which the beautiful works of, of humanity will find their ways in, but only, but purified. You see this imagery in Isaiah 65. I mentioned that passage where we see that the homes that are built, the vineyards that are planted, you see the production of humanity making its way into creation. And so in one sense, it's not just the reintegration of what, was, uh, of what took place in creation, but the beauty of what has been created by humanity, but purified. I remember hearing somebody once say that, that Miles Davis's album, Kind of Blue, which is a great jazz album, will find its way in the new heavens and new earth, but only purified. Every kind of like distorted or corrupt or self-centered motive behind our creation will be purified and the best version of what we have made will find its way in the new heavens and the new earth. And so there's a generosity even in God allowing what we've created in its most purified form to find its way into the new creation. There's also this thing in which, and we've kind of already addressed it, but there's this kind of boundless, unlimited beauty. Again, that's a, that's a great phrase. But, uh, but Jonathan Edwards, another old dead guy who loved the Lord, uh, described uh, heaven in this way. Therefore, their knowledge, referring to those who exist in the new heavens and new earth, therefore their knowledge will increase to eternity. For as they increase in the knowledge of God and of the works of God, the more they will see of his excellency. And the, the more they see of his excellency, the more they will love him. And the more they will love God, the more delight and happiness will they have in him. And so you see that one of the ways in which God's generosity is displayed in the new heavens and the new earth is the giving of himself eternally and forever. And if God, who is infinite in all of his attributes, what, part of what that means is that the, the, the work of delighting in God knows no end, that there is an infinite pursuit of the delight and the wonder and the excellencies of God. Sam Storms, who's alive, uh, I don't know why I have to keep uh, updating on their status, uh, uh, but, but he mentions this in describing this very same phenomenon. With each new desire comes a corresponding satisfaction. And with each new satisfaction, with each new discovery, yet unseen and unexperienced possibilities of enjoying and knowing God will emerge, to which our hearts will reach in desire which desire will in turn be fulfilled, which in turn will open up new vistas not yet attained, which when desired will then be fulfilled and satisfied and on and on forever and ever. There, you, you see this kind of infinite aspect of delighting in God. It's not just that heaven is a place where we get to do nice and fun things, but it is this infinite pursuit of delving into the depths and the beauties and the excellencies of God which is what the psalmist kind of describes in Psalm 84:10. for a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of wickedness. And so you see this aspect of God's generosity throughout the whole biblical narrative. There's not one part of the story where God isn't generous. And so again, when we try to explore what it means to live generously, 
if we bypass this, if we skip this part of the character of God being an outpourer, constantly giving of himself, then we will, we will short circuit what it means to live generously with our lives. So, so let, me, let me pause there. Questions, comments, pushback on this? Like what, what are, are there other kind of insights that came up? Maybe you discussed at your tables that aren't mentioned here. The ways in which God is generous throughout the biblical narrative. Oh, yeah. Oh, Emily, that's good. Where did my marker go? Uh, yeah, so the fact that his promises, I mean, it's the sign that like everything he declared in, in the book of Isaiah, I can't, don't quote me on the chapter and verse, but I believe it's Isaiah 45, but he, uh, it's where uh, God speaking through Isaiah says, I declare the end from the beginning. Surely I have said it. Surely it will come to pass. And the new heavens and earth is where that word of promise is fulfilled, that everything God promised is brought to completion in its fulfillment and consummation in the new heavens. I love, that's beautiful, that's beautiful. Okay, so again, starting with the generosity of God is, is the foundation of knowing what it means to live a generous life. So, so now we're gonna turn to, our second point is now in light of God being a generous God, an outpourer constantly in all that he is and does, we now look at what it means to be a generous people. A generous people. So this is now number two. Um, and so I think I've used this illustration before, but, but again, so we, we, starting with God, we reflect his character. Part of what it means to be made in the image of God is that we reflect God's character. We are like the moon and God is the sun. Uh, we, were, we were on a walk last night with my kids and we were talking about how uh, Jane was saying something about how the moon is so bright. And I was like, well, it's only bright because it's reflecting the sun. You know, it's not a source of light in and of itself. It's reflecting the beauty of the sun. That's who we are. We reflect the character of God. And I think I've used, have I used the illustration of playing disc golf with my daughter, Lula? Did I use it? Do I do, do, I do it in this class? On a Sunday. Well, I'm just going to do it again, just for, the, for the, the people who don't know it. So I remember when Lula was, I think she was five. We went and played disc golf. So disc golf is one of my favorite sports. Um, it is a sport, by the way, just so you know. And we were playing disc golf, and, and I noticed the way she would play, she would pick up the disc, and she would throw it, and just go, ugh. And she'd pick it up and throw it, and just go, ugh, just sigh. And I was like, what is she doing? And I realized that she was just mimicking me. Because I, I, I would throw, and I'd just go, oh, you know, like, because I was disappointed with my throw. And she's like, this is how you play this stupid game, I guess. You take a Tupperware lid, you throw it 10 feet, and then you complain. And so, and what was so sweet about that moment is, like, she's just like, it wasn't, like, even negative. She's like, this is, okay, this is fun. I want to do what my dad's doing. I want to be who my dad is, act like, like my dad. Now, she's, she's mimicking me. She's copying me. She's emulating me because she's my daughter not the other way around. You know what I'm saying? It wasn't like in that moment, like, you are my child, it's official. Like, but she is copying me because she is my child. Martin Luther once said, it is not our imitation that makes us sons and daughters. It is our sonship, our daughtership that makes us imitators. And again, it's that ordering. It's our being that precedes doing. And so when we think about being a generous people, we must start with first the generous God. And so being a generous people requires a proper knowledge of God being generous. And when we don't start there, we will come to wildly false assumptions about who God is. And we sometimes, in our culture, this happens where we tend to equate God with Santa Claus. 
And even though we kind of laugh at that idea, oh, like, I don't believe God is Santa Claus, we tend to functionally treat him in that way. And uh, Croatian theologian Miroslav Volf, he describes the, the Santa Claus God in this way. He says, God is an exhaustibly fertile source of everything. But is it true that God demands nothing? And so this is where we understand the generosity of God towards us. It is something that instills within us a desire to beget generosity. Generosity begets generosity. And so Wolf goes on to say, but is it true that God demands nothing? Here is what we do as worshipers of Santa Claus God. We embrace the conviction that God is infinitely generous source of all good, but conveniently forget that we were created in God's image. And so this is what's so important. We tend to view God as, or ourselves as the receivers of good things. We get from God. And that's absolutely true. But to be made in the image of God, to have the fullness of dignity as being made in his image, what comes with that is the desire and the, the tendency to reflect his character. So Wolf goes on to say, a Santa Claus God gives simply so that we can have and enjoy things. The true God gives so we can become joyful givers and not just self-absorbed receivers. God, the giver, has made us to be givers and obliges us therefore to give. Now that's such a different posture than than, than uh, having kind of a religious motivation or, or obligation or pressure to give because I feel like I have to, to, to repay a debt. But when we understand that by living generously, we're reflecting the character of a generous God, we are simply looking like our father. We are, we are emulating the one who has called us his children. Instead of a God telling us to be generous, it is us looking like our dad. That's kind of the picture of what it means to be a generous people. And so we are made in the image of God. We reflect and mirror him. We are marred by the fall, but being redeemed through Christ. And so thus by our nature, because we were created by God, we are to be outpourers. We are to give ourselves away. And so the only thing, in some ways, it feels unnatural to be generous and to give things away. But in fact, to be greedy and to hoard is actually incredibly unnatural. It's, it's very abnormal because it feels abnormal because we are abnormal. Uh, there's a theologian by the name of Harold Best. I don't know if he's alive or not. But I'm going to keep saying that anyway. Uh, but he talks about this idea of God being an outpouring God and how that impacts us. He says, God's grace, inexplicable generosity, and immeasurable imagination brought him to create a race of beings in his own image. Because God is the continuous outpourer. I love that language. He's the continuous outpourer. We bear his image as continuous outpourers. Being made in the image of God means that we were created to act the way God acts, having been given a nature within which such behavior is natural. And so again, starting with the character of God as the generous God, and knowing that we reflect his character, that means we are to be outpours. And we all know this experientially. We, we know that principle of it is, it is more blessed to give than to receive. It's hard to believe that before you do it, but we all know that experience of being generous and genuinely feeling a sense of blessedness, not because our, our, we have this kind of spiritual piety, we boost ourselves, but, but it, there is a genuine joy and delight that comes in being generous. But conversely, there is a spoiling that takes place when we aren't generous. 
when we hoard, when we hold things to ourselves, when we operate from a scarcity mentality of, well, I need to hold on to this because I don't know how much there's going to be. If you remember early on the pandemic, the whole toilet paper fiasco, it's like that was a great example of us not living out the nature of being continuous outpours. And there's this beautiful, well, it's actually actually kind of disgusting story in Exodus chapter 16. If you remember, Israel, the Israelites are wandering in the wilderness and God finally provides for them. What what does he bring from heaven? Manna. And and the Hebrew word, it literally means like, what is this? Because that's like, what is this? Exactly. That's the name. That's what manna essentially means. And, And what God says, he says, there will be plenty. Take what you need for today and I will provide the rest tomorrow. But the Israelites were greedy. And they're like, I don't know if we trust God to provide. Is he actually a continuous outpourer? And so what do they do? They, they, they eat some, and then they store some in their pockets and in their tents. And if you, if you remember from Sunday school, what happens, that manna, it, it, it spoiled and it bred worms. Which is just like, it's this just disgusting image, you know? But it's a way to show what happens when we distort God's grace and when we doubt his provision and generosity. In the same way, what I think this illustration is meant to show is that when we hoard, when we act like Scrooge, when we seek our own self-preservation, we spoil ourselves and we miss out on living out the design that God has for us in being generous. And so, so we, like, the scriptures affirm this, but one of the things that is so interesting, and I hope you guys hear me when I say this, like, we're also finding in like modern science and sociology that, that this is being confirmed. And one, one of my, fa- I remember hearing one of my professors say this in seminary is that I love when science catches up to the Bible. And, and, and it's not to say that science and, and, and scripture are at odds, they are not. But we should find that, that there are things that we discover in sociology and neuroscience and biology and cosmology to confirm and affirm what we find in scripture. And there was this great article in the Wall Street Journal. This is back in 2013, so it's a little older than I realized, actually. But it, it was a, an article entitled, We Are Hardwired for Giving. We Are Hardwired for Giving. And the article cites a neurological study that revealed this. This was fascinating. When people made the decision to donate to what they felt was a worthy organization, parts of the midbrain lit up the same region that controls cravings for food and sex which is just remarkable to communicate I mean, that what happens in our brains, neurologically speaking, is that when we are generous, there is a sense in which we are experiencing a joy. Now, again, that can be hijacked and we can do so to kind of boost our own ego or to make ourselves feel better. But there is this connection between a state of joy and contentment when we are generous that I think affirms God's good design. The study goes on to say that new evidence suggests that giving is actually inherently rewarding. The brain churns out a pleasurable response when we engage in it. And I just think that there's other sites, uh, sources we could refer to. If this is something that kind of interests you, there's a great book called The Paradox of Generosity uh, by Christian Smith. Uh, He is a sociologist out of Notre Dame, I believe. And it's a phenomenal book that just kind of brings together studies of generosity, of neuroscience and and, and scripture and how these kind of things intertwine. But Smith says this, he says, generosity is paradoxical. Those who give receive back in turn. By spending ourselves for others' well-being, we enhance our own standing. In letting go of some of what we own, we better secure our own lives. By giving ourselves away, we ourselves move toward flourishing. 
This is not only a philosophical or religious teaching, it is a sociological fact. Now, please hear me. I'm not saying this as a way to like, so therefore it affirms the, like the, the, the it, I'm, not, I'm not stating these sociological facts as an authority over scripture. I'm trying to point out that we shouldn't be surprised when other studies align with the truth of what God has designed us to be. And so living as generous people, reflecting our generous God is something that produces a sense of joy and goodness to us. But, but let me, I want to ask this question, but before we go to our tables for our next round of discussion, if this is true, if God is a continuous outpourer, if we are most like him when we're generous, if the good life is the generous life, why is it so difficult to be generous? And, and this is what I, I actually want us to kind of discuss together as a large group. What are some of the reasons why it is so difficult for us to be generous. And, and you, can, you can answer that from the financial perspective or it could just be of your time, uh, but, but what are some of the reasons why it is difficult for us to be generous? Yeah, Joe. I think fear of the future. Okay, yeah, yeah, fear of the future. Kind of, well, if I, if I give up this now, how do I know that I'll have enough for myself later? And so, which in some ways that's, that was the story of the Israelites. I'm, I've got to hold on to this. Like, is, is God going to provide tomorrow? And so I've got to secure myself. And we can, we, can, we can justify, man, we can justify this so easily as like, we're being wise, we're being, we're being stewards of our time, and we're trying to plan wisely. And again, I'm all for planning and all that. But it's so easy for us to turn fear into kind of this virtue. And you, you know yourself what's motivating you to avoid being generous, but that's absolutely one. Well, what's another? What's another hurdle or barrier uh, to us living generously? We think we Distrust of others. It, in what sense? Like, like what are you going to do with it? Yeah. So it's like, is this a wise investment? Like, well, if I give you, if I give you these resources, if I take time out of my day to serve you, is that going to actually benefit you? And so, yeah, so there can be a distrust of others. Oh, yeah. So it's, a, it's almost like I believe that other people are more generous. Is that kind of what you're saying, Mitch? Yeah, yeah. So it's like, oh, no, like other people will probably step in. I don't need to be. And, and I like that, that is absolutely a phenomenon. There's this kind of crowd mentality like, well, I don't need to I don't need to help. Like other people are going to be involved. Like what what contribution can I make uh, to to what's going on either in our church or our community or our culture, or whatever it may be. But yeah, kind of a kind of a uh, how would you say that? Like a a trust, I guess, uh, parenthetically, or a trust uh, of, of the generosity of others. That's good. What else? Yeah, Tim. I think we tend to try to find happiness by satisfying our impulses, and selfishness is impulsive, whereas generosity is. Yeah, yeah, so it's, it's, it's easy to serve yourself. That, that comes more naturally because we are unnatural. Is that kind of what you're saying? It's like... Yeah. Yeah, and, it's, and, I, and again, we, we say natural. It's like, well, that's just, that's, a, that's just human nature. It's like, yes, it is, and that's not good. You know, it's like there is something corrupt about that. I think, I can't remember what, which week it was, but where one of our table discussions was that, 
that story from the book of like, if you enter the room, uh, it's the room that will give you your heart's desires. And there's this kind of like fear of like, do I actually want to go in? And so it's like, man, even in pursuing everything that we want, we may actually rob ourselves of the, of the very thing we're going after, namely joy. Yeah. What else? Maybe one, one more. Yeah, Emily. I, this is kind of a combination of what others have shared, but I think we think we know what's best for us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I know I do, but like, I know that you probably don't. And so, yeah, no, but tr- truly, like, I, I think there's this, well, okay, you know, I, I, I know that I need to provide for myself in these ways. And, and if I don't provide for myself, then who is? And so there's, there's either this kind of inflated, I don't know, knowledge of self, um, and also maybe even a pride of like, well, I know better. You know, I, I know how to manage my resources or things like that. Yeah. Maybe one more. What's another barrier? Yeah, Melody. Oh. Yeah. And and it can almost. I don't know if this is where you're going with that, but there's almost this sense of like paralysis by analysis of like. Well, oh man, like, well, if I, well, if, if we give here, are they going to steward it wisely, you know? And like, oh, and then you just end up not doing anything. And like, that's, that's how I operate in a lot of ways. Like I, I try to like, I was trying to buy a power tool the other day for a project that I needed to do. And I couldn't decide on which one to get. It's like, well, is this the best one? And this one might not be powerful enough. And I just ended up not buying it. It's just like, that's, well, that's the worst decision. You know, it's like, I need to do this project. And, and now we don't have a roof. And so on our house. And so, no, but, but truly like there can be this sense of like, and again, you can justify it where it's like, well, it's just, I'm, I'm trying to be discerning. It's like, no, you're just justifying not being generous. It's overthinking. It's, over, it's overthinking. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I'll, I'll just say yeah, overthinking. I, you, this is kind of related to that, Melly, but there's, there is a bit of like kind of compassion fatigue, if you've heard this term. Um, Joe, we, we were kind of talking about this term. Weren't we talking about compassion fatigue at one point? Yeah, yeah. So like this idea of like, you can almost feel this overwhelming sense of like, there's just so many needs. There's so many things to address. And so how can I be, even begin to respond? And so you just kind of fall down in despair of like, there's just no way. And so I'll just, you know, go buy another moped. Moped, why is that? I, I was trying to think, that's the first thing that came to mind, like, you know, a glamorous object, like a moped. Who owns mopeds still? Um, <laughs> okay, so, so again, I, I think it's helpful for us to kind of share, okay, what are these barriers? Because some of you might be like, oh my gosh, that's, that is, that's why I don't give. Oh, this is why, I do. like, I think again, it's, and sometimes we feel this sense of like, we don't want to do that introspective work of like, okay, why am I not generous? Because like, who wants to reflect on the fact that they're not generous? Who wants to like, oh, like, I really, what are all the reasons I don't reflect God? You know, like no one wants to talk about that, but it's really good for us to know those things so that we can address them and respond to them and to be open and honest with one another. Like, hey, you know what? Here's why I'm not generous. And that might be a really hard thing for us to say in community and to one another, but it's absolutely what we need. We need to be able to trust each other with those struggles. And I, I'm not asking us to do this right now. Like, okay, so tell everybody how you fail at generosity. But I think that is something we need to be willing to do. Like, hey, here is my, here's my barrier to why I'm not generous. And I, this, is, this is not on my notes, but I would just say, that might be something worth exploring with, with a trusted person in your life. Someone who you know, like when you give the fine china of your life to them, they're not gonna destroy it. I would encourage you to like reflect on that. What is the reason I'm not generous? 
and what needs to be addressed in my life to kind of overcome that, that hurdle. So, okay, so let's do this. Um, let's go ahead and go to our tables for discussion B. Um, yes, yeah, yeah, let's do that, let's do that. So we'll, uh, we have three questions there. We'll come back, move from generous God to generous people, and then to a generous design. So table discussion part B. All right, so I'd love to interact a little bit with the last question, if you were able to get to it, and if not, that's okay. Um, but the last question of what are some contributing factors that cause us to be more generous? So instead of beating ourselves up for why we're not generous, um, you know who you are. No, just kidding. Uh, but what are, what are some of the ways in which uh, that compel us to be generous? What are some of those, whether, whether good or bad motivations, there can be good and bad motivations, but what are some things that compel us to be more generous? Were there some things you discussed at your tables? Yeah. Yeah. So, so there's a modeling. Again, I, I mentioned how generosity begets generosity. There's there's something about seeing it modeled, a plausibility of being generous that I think is absolutely a, a motivating factor for sure. What else? Yeah, Logan. I would say like seeing the impact of my generosity. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. And, and sometimes we're not always granted that that perspective or privilege, but like, but absolutely, when you are able to see, oh my gosh, like. Through my generosity, whether directly or indirectly, you can see the impact that is. That's a motivating thing. Absolutely. Absolutely. What else? What are some other factors that contribute? Yeah, Abby. Uh, when you've been shown generosity and given that um, gift without any expectation in return, you really just want to see the need for other people. Yeah. Oh, that's, that is so good. It, where, where my mind goes in that, it's the story of, uh, of the woman caught in adultery and, and Jesus uh, loves her and welcomes and forgives her and says, go and sin no more. You, you also have the story of uh, the woman anointing Jesus at Bethany of like, and Jesus says to his disciples, he, uh, like those who have been forgiven much, love much. And so when you understand what you've received, again, it compels you to be generous. And so absolutely. So being the recipient of generosity compels you to be generous. Absolutely. That's beautiful. What else? What are some other compelling factors that lead us to be more generous? Maybe one more. Yeah, Tim. Yeah, so wh whether a global perspective, when you recognize, I mean, relatively, because like rich people are always other people, you know? I mean, have you, ever th have you ever realized that? Like rich people are always other people. And because there's always, there's always somebody who's going to be wealthier than you, and there's always somebody who is Beneath, I, I hate to use that term, but like in terms of financial status, material wealth, absolutely. So having that perspective is so, so key. And so, which, which is why it's good. We, we've talked about this before, how, um, just as a side note, like it's really, I think, dangerous and unhealthy for us as believers, but also as humans to operate within homogenous spaces. And then and I refer to that homogeneity when, as it pertains to ethnicity, as it pertains to age, as it pertains to socioeconomic. When you are surrounded by people who are in your same exact tax bracket, there is, you can almost be out of touch or you can have a cynicism or a distrust of other people. And that is absolutely true. In some ways, in some ways, crossing the socioeconomic barrier is a harder barrier than some other barriers in our culture uh, because we tend to not know how to operate or interact with, uh, with people who are in different statuses. That's a whole other conversation, but absolutely, perspective is a great one. 
Okay, so uh, we've looked at a, a generous God, starting there, how that forms us to be a generous people. And so now what I want us to turn to is a generous design. How do the scriptures kind of, so, so we have these broad pictures. Okay, God is generous, we should be generous, but how should we be generous? What is God's design and pattern plan for us? So what we're going to look at are four key biblical principles. Um, and the first one is, is kind of around this idea. Well, I won't give it away here. But this first idea is that God owns it all. God owns it all. Uh, would someone, if they have their Bibles open, would someone turn to Psalm 24, verses 1 and 2? Would someone have their big boy or big girl voice read Psalm 24, verses 1 through 2? Who's got it? Ken, you got it? Looks like you got a Bible open. It looks like a Bible. There it is. There's, come on. <laughs> you, that means you got to stand and do like an old English accent as well. So if, as, as, one of my, as one of my professors made the joke, if the King James Version was good enough for Jesus, it's good enough for me. That's a joke because it came after Jesus. So anyway, Bible humor. So in, in that psalm, you see, like, it, we're sometimes tempted to just hear, God is the creator. He's made the world. And that's absolutely true. But what does he say is that he has founded, the, everything therein is his. There, there's language of ownership. That everything that is within the earth is his because he has founded it. Just, just like an artist who creates a painting and puts their signature on it to say, this is mine. I have rights and authority over it. You can't copy it. You can't take it. You can't abuse it. This is mine. The same way all that is within the earth is God's. And so, so what is communicated here is that, that when it comes to creation, ownership is ascribed to God. But what is ascribed to us as his, uh, as his image bearers is not so much ownership, but a sense of stewardship. And, and this is the word that is used to describe uh, us as creatures, as creators made in the image of God. In fact, even in, in the creation account in Genesis 1 and 2, Adam and Eve are, are given dominion over the earth, but they are not given ownership over the earth. They are given a stewardship. They are placed in the garden to keep it, to cultivate it. And so what is the difference? How would you distinguish in a couple words or a sentence or in a haiku, if you desire, uh, the difference between ownership and stewardship? How would you dis distinguish the difference between ownership and stewardship? Anybody want to take a stab at that? I worked at Jimmy John's for a long time. Okay. Like the owner of the actual franchise and like the manager. And like if you're a manager, people look up to you and you are controlling what's going on in the restaurant. Yeah. You don't own it, yeah. This, this particular friend, I don't know if you heard Mitch, but he was talking about working at Jimmy John's at one point as a manager, you are a steward of what the owner has entrusted to you, you know? So there are certain things you can do, but there are certain things you can't do as a manager at that level. That, that's, a, that's a great picture, that's a great picture. Yeah, so the idea of stewardship is that largely the, the most operative word is that we've been entrusted. There's something that has been given to you and there's a purpose behind it. It's not just like, hey, watch my stuff while I'm gone. Like you guys been to the coffee shop where someone says like, gotta run to the bathroom, watch my stuff. Um, and so I don't know, like I've, I've seen people, like, there's one time I was at a coffee shop where I was sitting next to a guy and he looked at me and then he went to somebody else and said that. <laughs> it was so, and I was just like, I want to steal that stuff now just because he did that. But um, maybe he just thought like, this guy can't protect my stuff. Um, 
But, but there's this idea of being entrusted with something, with a purpose, with a design, with a goal. And that's exactly what we are. We are executors of an estate, if you will. We have been given something to oversee. And so we see this absolutely in terms of we are stewards of the created order. We are stewards of the world that God has made, which is why I, I believe there's absolutely, Christians of all people should be people who have, who have an environmentally conscious, un, conscience, conscientious understanding of how we inhabit this world and steward it. Absolutely. But in particular, as it pertains to finances and our resources, God has entrusted things to us to steward. And, and it's not that he has entrusted us to handle 10% of our resources to give back to him. The idea is that he owns it all. And so we tend to get caught up in this idea of like tithing, how much should we give away and things like that. But the question isn't so much how much do we give away? It's do I have an understanding that God owns it all? And so it's not just, okay, how do I steward what God has given me by investing it or donating it or serving? It's how, how am I honoring God as a steward in the way I spend things on myself even? Because we tend to think that stewardship is only about what we give away. But stewardship absolutely applies to how we spend on ourselves and the perspective we have of that. And so again, if you remember the, the, the Hebrew word that we looked at in the yoke lecture, the word tome, this word means wholeness, completion. God is not interested in having jurisdiction over one part of your life. He is wanting the whole aspect of our lives. And so the idea of trying to operate in this, well, there's this part of my life that I steward for God, but other places are kind of off limits. A stewarding mentality sees everything that we have, our finances, our time, our bodies, our work, our leisure time, everything is understood in this category of stewardship. Now, uh, the, the reading assignment this week was a chapter from Economics of Neighborly Love by Pastor Tom Nelson, our senior pastor. And there was a, an excerpt that I wanted to pull and mention. It's actually, it's a quote by Randy Alcorn, so I'm not even quoting Tom. Don't tell him I didn't quote him. But, uh, but, but Randy Alcorn says this, it's on page 116. And if you want to copy this book, I'm happy to, to sell them to you really cheap. Uh, no, just kidding. It's a gift to you if you're interested. Um, uh, Alcorn says this, stewardship is not a subcategory of the Christian life. Stewardship is the Christian life. For what is stewardship, but that God has entrusted to us life, time, talents, money, possessions, family, his grace, and even his son. In each case, he evaluates how we regard and what we do with that which he has entrusted to us. That last line is so important. In each case, in all of these categories of life, he evaluates how we regard and what we do with that which he has entrusted to us which means God isn't just interested in the money you give to that nonprofit, to the church, to the man or woman on the street. He is also interested, deeply interested, in how you invest, in how you spend, in how you shop, in how you even relate to your money, in how often you are checking the stock market and your bank account. Like, yep, it's the same number. You don't need to keep looking. It, like, we, we have this kind of strange relationship to our money that we need to understand uh, first and foremost, through the lens of stewardship. And, and one of my favorite places to kind of share this is in, in Matthew 22, uh, there's this teaching that is always super confusing for some people. It's when Jesus is asked, should we pay taxes to Caesar? 
And so often people kind of use this as a way to kind of communicate what it means to pay taxes to America, that, that Jesus was foreshadowing kind of our, our democracy and how we pay. It's like, that's not what he's talking about. Because what Jesus says, let, let me read this passage really, really quickly. The Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle him in his words, and they sent their disciples to him, along with uh, the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully, and you do not care about anyone's opinion. For you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus, aware of their malice, said, Why put me to the test, you hypocrites? He had a way with words, didn't he? And he says this, And they brought him a denarius. So he says, Show me a coin for the tax. And they brought him a denarius. And Jesus said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. And then he said to them, Therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. Now, again, we're, we hear that and we're thinking, okay, he's, he's talking about how it's okay to still kind of be a citizen of a country and be faithful to that, but also be faithful to, 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 to Jesus. But, but if you are a Hebrew student of the scriptures, when Jesus says, whose likeness, whose image is on that coin? Okay, then, then give to Caesar what's his and give to God what is God's. Where is God's image? Where is God's likeness? Where is God's inscription? It's, it's upon our entire being. And so what Jesus is saying, he's not saying it's okay to pay taxes, which is true. He's saying something much more grand. He's saying, give to, give to Caesar what's his, but give to God which is his. And that is the entirety of your existence. That is your entire being. Everything is to be given to God. There is no part of our life that is off limits. And there is nothing of our life that he can't ask. Which can be terrifying to hear, but when you understand, again, starting with the generosity, the continuous outpouring nature of God, we can understand that what he asks of us is always for our good. So the first principle, God owns it all. The second principle, I write too big here. Let me, let me write a little smaller. Uh, the second principle is God wants the first and the best. God wants the first and the best. Now, this is a little bit of a strange principle to understand in our context because so much of, of the scriptural teachings on giving and tithing uh, are, are within a, an agrarian society. And so, so particularly like in the book of Proverbs, Proverbs 3, 9 says, honor the Lord from your wealth and from the first of all of your produce. And so because we don't live in an agrarian society, like, you know, we don't go to Walmart with a bushel of barrel, a bushel of apples trying to buy like lawn chairs. Like we don't barter anymore. I tried that one time. It doesn't work. Um, but we, we, so it's hard for us to miss this principle of first fruits, of the first and the best. And the idea here, and, and if you want to just further study, Nehemiah chapter 10 is a great text to look at. We, we won't look at it tonight just for the sake of time. But you see this kind of instruction on the tithe given in Nehemiah. And, and there is a principle of, of a 10% gift, but the idea is a giving, a giving of the first fruits. And so the idea is that we shouldn't think of our generosity particularly toward the work of God's mission in the church as, a, uh, as, a, as an afterthought or as a leftover. And that's so often how we tend to think of generosity towards the church is a kind of a last ditch effort or a, a leftover kind of principle. And the idea here, the picture is, are we giving the first and best? And so the tithe displayed in Nehemiah, the teaching is giving the best of your produce, not, not what's left over, 
uh, not kind of the stuff that falls to the ground, you know, but it's the best of what you've produced. And so kind of in our context, where since we don't, are, we're not in an agrarian society, the best way to think about it is, and this may sound rather overly simplistic, but when you think about your budget, is, is the first thing at the top of the list, your generosity, is what you are giving to the church and to God's mission and to the needs of your neighbors. Is that the first line item in your budget? That may sound rather overly simplistic, but I think having that principle of this is where we are first, this is before anything else is spent and before we think about spending on ourselves, this is the first thing that we're, we're considering is what it means to give towards God's mission and particularly towards the church. And so this idea of first rather than leftovers is part of God's design. We tend to, again, to, we tend to think of, Tim, you were mentioning that, that kind of natural uh, impulsive self-preservation uh, work of like, it's easier for us to think about what do I need first, and then if there's anything left over, I'll, I'll kind of pass it on. And that idea is very antithetical to God's design for how we give. So, so God owns it all. God wants the first and the best. And then the third is that God loves his people and his mission. God loves his people and his mission. And, and really part of what we mean here is that there is this, there is a, a priority and an emphasis on, on uniquely giving towards the people of God, towards the mission of the church. So, so in the teaching of Nehemiah, you see this emphasis of, of supporting the work of the Levites and the priests and the temple and the tabernacle. Now, we don't have a temple and tabernacle now, uh, but, but what we see, the, the, the transition into the New Testament, the church being the gathering of God's people, that this same principle applies as we move into the New Testament, that there's a unique emphasis of caring for the people of God. You see this taught in, in the book of Galatians chapter 6. Paul talks about how we should, we should meet the needs of others, love all people, but especially those of the household of faith. That there should be a unique emphasis of caring for the needs of our family as we think about being a generous people to those around us. And so it's not that they're in competition, but that there is kind of this idea of a first and foremost emphasis on investing in the people of God so that we might be more faithful and fruitful in caring for others around us. And so when we think about, and again, this is where there, there can be pushback, but part of the reason why we talk about generosity so much is because again, as I mentioned, it's not something that we want from you. It is absolutely something we want for you. But the other thing, and Logan, you mentioned this in terms of a motivation for generosity is like, if we know the impact of what we're giving towards, that can kind of help and kind of motivate us. And, and we, we share this often. We try to share stories of like what your tithe dollars, so to speak, do and how they are at work. And, and there's so much we can share. And again, if you ever want questions or want to know more about how we are stewarding those, uh, those resources, one, our financial information is always on our website. Our budget is there. Uh, we conduct uh, audits every other, we do an internal audit every year or every other year and an external audit every other year. So there's an audit every year but we rotate between internal and external. So if you're interested in that information, but, but as you think about generosity towards Christ's community in particular, your generosity allows us to be a church that is spread across five campuses. You know, we, we, we don't just invest in one local congregation. And some of you might know this, but there are a lot of things that we say no to and frankly can't do here at this campus because we want our other campuses to be able to flourish. There are things that our downtown campus and our Shawnee campus can't and couldn't do on their own if we weren't together. 
And so we intentionally say, hey, we're not going to be able to hire a person for this position or do these things because we want our other campuses to be able to flourish. And we believe that having a local congregation in five uh, contextualized communities is more advantageous to the mission of God than doing more in one location. Does that make sense? And so that's part of what it means to be generous towards the local church. Uh, we also, when you are giving to Christ's community, you're investing in 15, I think it's 16 now, uh, local nonprofit ministries and organizations seeking the welfare of our city. That across our five campuses, we each have three, some of us have four local partnerships investing in and uh, investing in and caring for the underprivileged and resourced in our communities. Additionally, uh, through our five global partnerships uh, in Kenya, in Rwanda, in Iran, Germany and China, I have to say it with my eyes closed, I've got to bring them together there. Uh, we are connected to over 500 churches through those five global partnerships and through our investment financially to those church planting networks. We have a connection to over 500 congregations worldwide. You, you probably don't know that. We don't talk about that enough and we probably should. But again, part of your investment in Christ's community is helping the flourishing, the establishment of 500 churches and that number is growing. Additionally, you provide resources for mental health uh, resources. We have a list of counselors that we work with and trusted counselors that we provide resources for, for many family members of our church who can't afford that. And so that is a privilege. We, one of our largest budget items in our ministry budget is for mental health uh, for people who can't afford uh, a counselor. And so that is, again, we don't, we don't advertise that. We don't want to like brag about that. But at the same time, I want you guys to know that we we meet the needs of a lot of family members through that because of your generosity. Additionally, we have resources for food and housing assistance. We have met a lot of needs for people who have dealt with uh, food insecurity and, and uh, rent and mortgage and utilities, especially during this COVID time. Um, we also are able to respond to crisis events. So we always have, we have a line item budget that we give whenever there's a, a hurricane or uh, an earthquake. We always are prepared to respond through our denominations um, crisis relief um, a ministry called Reach Global or Touch Global. Reach Global. Do you know what it has been? Reach Global. Reach Global's missions. Touch Global, I think, is is the kind of the felt needs responding to crisis. I, I should know that, but I think it's Touch Global. Reach Global is our missions. That's right. And and then also there's an investment in the training of future pastors. And so, I mean, I mean, Ben Lord being one of them, as we think about our pastoral residency, you were invested in the work of helping develop and train pastors for the next generation. Again, we could invest in just pastors that we keep here and kind of build our ministry. But, but again, what does a disciple do that's ready for Monday? They give themselves away. And, and we try to model that in the way in which we develop and train pastors. And then lastly, uh, the, one of the things that we also believe in is like congregational formation and development. Like if you attended our event with Dr. Kurt Thompson, uh, we've had events where we bring in speakers to help form us and shape us in various areas and subjects. So Dr. Kurt Thompson speaking on mental health and shame. We had Dr. Peter Cha from Trinity who came and led us in a workshop on racial reconciliation and justice. Uh, in January, you're the first to know this actually, uh, we're bringing in Jenny Yang from World Relief to help us understand a biblical theology of welcoming the immigrant, refugee, and foreigner among us. And so those are, those are opportunities we have for all of our church that is made possible through your generosity. And again, I'm not saying this to brag about what we do as a church, but kind of, because I, I, I love our church. And it's made possible because of the generosity of our congregation. And so, so, so again, I, I could keep going and sharing, but it's helpful to know what you're investing in when you're investing in the local church. Uh, and there's more I can share. And if you have questions about that, I'd love to share more. But, but I am, uh, oh man, I'm almost running out of time. 
So let's do this. I'm, I'm going to pause here for our last table discussion. Uh, and then I'll, I'll end with a brief uh, charge on a generous path forward, which is a very short uh, point. But last, last table discussion, three questions, and then we'll come back together for our wrap up at the end. All right, so we have, we have three minutes left. Um, and what I want to do very briefly, this is just, this is kind of a bullet point. And so in terms of kind of next steps, and so if this is kind of a new idea for you of like, learning how to live generously as it, as it pertains to our, our time, our, our treasures, our talents. But as we particularly think about our finances, that, that can be an overwhelming thing to think about and how to begin. And so I just want to offer some bullet point next steps to consider. The first is, and this is just kind of basic, but like have a plan. I think when we tend to think of generosity, we, uh, it's like, oh, it's just kind of on a whim, or I'm inspired by a moment, or there's, there's a cause that I'm interested in, and we kind of just give kind of on the fly. I think it's important to have a plan, to be intentional and have a design to it. And so as you think about your family, your dynamics and situation, what is your plan? How can you begin to be living generously? Uh, the second, and this is probably true for many of us, is that one of the hurdles that keeps us from being generous is debt. And, and I, don't, I don't share that as a way to, to shame you, but that is absolutely a crucial step that we need to take. And so sometimes debt begins, becomes that thing that we just like, we just can't get past. And so it prevents us from enjoying a generous life. And so I absolutely finding ways to minimize debt. If you haven't taken a class like Financial Peace University, um, we would really encourage that. We used to offer that in the spring. We're hoping to do that again this upcoming spring. But if you've not done that, I encourage you to take uh, Financial Peace University. Uh, the, the third is create margin. And part of what might be this is if you have a plan, minimize debt, but then what are some things that you can kind of create margin both in terms of time, of your own finances, but also your own lifestyle? What are things that you need to minimize or cut down on? And, and again, I hope you hear me that it's not about this is what good Christians do, but it's that how do we seek to live into this generous life more faithfully? And part of what that means is maybe doing an audit of our lives of like, are there is there just too much stuff around us? And, and or am I invested in too many things? And so what is the kind of margin we need to create? Related to that, so this is kind of more like presently, what, what, how can we create margin? This is kind of looking ahead, watch out for lifestyle creep, which is a term to kind of describe like we all, like, like think about where you were in life 10, 15, 20, 30 years ago and where you are now. We all tend to kind of gradually increase the quality of our lifestyle. And, and I just think it's, I, I'm not saying that like you should just stay in the same house and drive the same car for the rest of your life, but we should be at least on the watch of why we are deciding to purchase this home, buy this car, purchase these items. What is the motivation behind it? And are we just competing with the Joneses and trying to one up them next door? So again, monitoring lifestyle creep. And, and then the fifth, I would just say, if you haven't begun to live generously, in some way, like start, start somehow and increase. And, and, and I say that to say that the generous life is not a static life, it is a dynamic life. We don't just kind of give generously once or just in one fashion or one way, but we should think of generosity like a Swiss army knife. It should absolutely have a lot of different methods and ways of, of being expressed and displayed. And so have a plan, minimize debt, create margin, watch out for lifestyle creep, and again, start somewhere. Uh, you don't have like, like if the idea of, th of starting at like a 10% tithe is like so overwhelming, start with 1% and build from there. 
Again, the goal isn't so that you give more to the local church or to nonprofits. It truly is an opportunity to reflect the character of our God, who is a continuous outpourer, because we believe the generous life is the best life. So that's kind of the last point, the generous path. Uh, The last thing I'll point to, I want to remind you, if you haven't been paying attention to the capstone prompts, uh, please make sure you're doing that. So what you'll notice is that during each week's uh, um, weekly kind of assignments, there is a capstone prompt. And so one of the prompts that's coming up is to devise a plan of what would you do to leverage $20 or if you want to increase that amount, what would you do to leverage $20 towards addressing a problem that you see in your Monday life? Again, that may seem like a simple thing, but this is just a kind of a small, simple step to begin to think about how do we steward resources and finances to address problems in our communities and in our Monday life. And so so part of your assignment for next week is to give thought to how you would begin to leverage a small amount of money to address a problem that you see and are aware of in your Monday life. And so that's something to give some time and thought to for this week. If you have questions about it, let me know. But that's the plan for the next, uh, our following Tuesday. So last thing, I know we're two minutes over. I want you to take 30 seconds. We do this every week. What is your 30 second takeaway from tonight? What is one habit you want to begin? What is an idea that has been an inspiring thing? What was a joke that I said that was stupid that you want to forget or whatever it may be. Just take 30 seconds. What's your 30 second takeaway? And then I will send us out of here. And as you're wrapping up to be sensitive to time, let me close with our benediction our good word for the road from Romans chapter 12, one of my favorite benedictions to share. Hear these words, may they form us and shape us. So brothers and sisters, let love be genuine, abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal, be fervent in spirit, serve the Lord, rejoice in hope, be patient in tribulation, be constant in prayer, contribute to the needs of the saints, and seek to show hospitality. Go in peace. Have a great rest of your week, y'all. Love you.